0: The, uh, we are looking at John chapter 13. If you're listening online, John 13. Uh, this morning's title is A Servant's Heart. And uh, Ron Hamilton, I think, wrote that song, Make Me a Servant Like You, Give Me, Lord, A Servant's Heart. And that would be very apropos for this morning's message. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 21, if you're still there. John 13, 21. John 13, 21. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one... Of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Remember, John does never calls himself by name in his gospel. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that would be John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. That he then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. When I have dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew, now John looking back some 60 years later, 50, 60 years later, now no man knew at the table for what he intent, he spake this unto him, for some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we need of against the beast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then having received the sop went out immediately, immediately went out and it was night. May the Lord have his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together for a moment. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray you help me today. I am nothing and you are everything. May your word for I am lodging in our hearts. Forgive me of sin, empty me of self, and please fill me with your spirit today. Help this word to go forth. And again, that we would listen carefully with those teaching downstairs. Bless, uh, as we think about being a servant, may we desire to serve you in whatever way you call us to serve. And be willing to do so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Regarding servanthood, and there is a, there's a purpose to these questions, they're humorous at first, but what do you call a chicken crossing the road, poultry in motion? What do you call four bullfighters in quicksand, four bullfighters in quicksand, cuatro cinco? What do you call cheese that isn't yours, nacho cheese? And what do you call a man who falls in an upholstery machine, he's fully recovered, what do you call a Christian who isn't serving? A contradiction. What do you call a Christian who isn't serving? A contradiction. The teaching of the master, if you're taking down notes, number one is the teaching of the master. The example would be this. Uh, in John thirteen twelve. if you will change mine over to white uh, hotspot. Please. The teaching of the master, the example is found in chapter 13, verse 12. We find him back over to our text. And after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down, again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. He's going to explain to Peter and John and James and the rest the meaning of why he had washed their feet. We can almost feel the silence. He has done washing their feet. He puts his garment back on. He he lays the towel aside. And he puts, he puts the garment on, and he, he has resumed his place at the table. Can you imagine how they felt? Jesus washed their feet. Now, remember, the table is not, and you're going to see in a few moments, Da Vinci's idea of what it looked like. But actually, they were reclining on their left side and eating with their right hand, and their feet would be back away from the table. Thank goodness, probably, we're thinking about that. They're back away from the table. Jesus had washed all their feet. Perhaps all of them were ashamed. I would have been ashamed. Can you think about that Jesus washed your feet? What what humility he showed. Except for Judas. Judas is probably filled with contempt that Jesus would do something like that because he wanted a king. Now the Lord's reviewing the contrast between the lofty titles and the lowly task. You call me master and Lord and, and say, well, for so I am. Master is the word teacher. The Lord was addressed this way 31 times. He refers to himself eight times as the teacher. Rabbi, the common title for that. The Greek word for Lord is kurios or owner. A word expresses authority and lordship. Many today refer to the Lord as, as public prayer, Jesus, or, or dear Jesus. I want you to know no one called him Jesus during his ministry except the blind man who said, uh, Jesus, thou son of David. And so Jesus was not a typical title people would call Christ while he's here on earth. Lord, master, yes. If I then, 14, be your lord and master, have worshiped, wash your feet, sorry, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is a synecdoche, a synecdoche, which simply means exchanging one idea for an associated idea. So the act of foot washing really refers to all kinds of self-denial service. Self-denial service. That's what the idea is there. The act of foot washing, now it's been elevated. The Brethren Church, I believe the Brethren Church, at least some of them, elevated to the third ordinance with baptism and communion and foot washing. But Jesus never elevated to that. Matter of fact, the epistles never elevates it to a third church ordinance, along with baptism and communion. In first Timothy five one or five ten it talks about the the women. If she has washed the saints feet, if this widow has done that act of service, not talking about a group of church people sitting down and washing one another's feet. Am I against that? No. Women with women, men with men, I'm not against doing that at all. But I would, I would say that that's not part of the church ordinance, per se, if you would. You ought to wash one another's feet. It's a call to loving care for one another, no matter what menial task it may be. No service is too small. It's for God's work. Nothing should stand in our way of a ministering. And last Sunday evening, many of you ministered to me by helping out in so many different ways. That was a ministry to the pastor. And so thank you so much for that. And what you do every week. Some of you doing things every single week to help. Thank you for those things. For I have not in fifteen, for I've not given you an example that you. for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done. He laid aside dignity, he took the lowest place, the place of a slave. Matter of fact, only Gentile slaves had the washed feet. Jewish slaves did not even have to wash feet in Jewish homes, we understand. Can we afford to minister lovingly to others even at the expense of our cher- cherished dignity? What will people say if they see us doing that? Doesn't matter what people say. What God thinks and says is what we should be striving for. Do we please the Master? Dave Thomas, who passed away in 2002, once appeared on the front of their annual report. He was holding a mop bucket, a mop and a plastic mop bucket. He described this picture this way. He says, "I got my MBA long before my GED." And MBA does not mean Master of Business Administration. It means mop bucket attitude. MBA, mop bucket attitude. And you can see today how far Win is I mean, it's a huge corporation because he had a mop bucket attitude. That's what, It's a modeling really after the master. Perhaps, though, many believers think that somebody else will do it. There's a clever young guy named somebody else. There's nothing this guy can't do. He's busy from morning all the way till late at night just substituting for you. You're asked to do this or you're asked to do that. And what is your reply? Get somebody else to do that job. He'll do it much better than I. So much to do in this weary old world. So much and workers so few. And somebody else all weary and worn is still substituting for you. Somebody else will do it. I'm glad I think, I believe our church is far above average of people who are helping out in so many ways. I praise the Lord for that. May it continue. May it continue. The example. A servant's heart. The expectation in 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And many years later now, Paul, uh, Peter's writing to the very persecuted church. Terrible things happening. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. How does he tell the younger members? Submit yourselves unto the elder and be clothed with Humility. Clothed means to, to gird yourself on. Do you think perhaps Peter, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, goes back to this very night when Jesus clothed himself with humility and washed his feet and the disciples' feet. Be clothed with humility, again, means signifying a, a knotted or a cloth to be, uh, to be knotted as a garment. It was really a garment of this, of a slave. I really believe he had his mind's eye, Jesus washing his feet. If you know these things in 17, happy are ye if you do them. By the way, the world cannot see happiness as humility. The world sees happiness as, wow, look at me, I am something, I've done all these things, etc. And that's what they think happiness when when you attain something. When you attain something, you're gonna be the happiest of all. I, I don't see that. Let me ask you, who is the happiest person in the upper room? It wasn't Peter or the other disciples, it wasn't even Judas Iscariot. I think it was Jesus happily doing his father's will. Now, he was going to face a terrible, terrible, next 24 hours, terrible time. I can't even imagine the, the pain, physical pain. And then even greater than that, the, the alienation from his father for three hours on the cross. But I think of all the people, the happiest was, was Jesus. The example, the expectation. And then there's an explanation in 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now we're still in the upper room. John focuses now on the traitor. Reading from a perspective, perhaps again 60 years later or so, after the event, he's, he's been moved, maybe 70 years even, been moved to, he's indignant against Judas. When he thinks and writes about Judas, and I think it's with loathing. He was a a hypocrite. He was a liar. He was a thief. He was a traitor. He was all those things. Hold your finger and look back at the beauty of the scripture. Psalm 41 verse 9. I'm holding my finger in John 13. Psalm 41 verse 9. He says that scripture may be fulfilled. Psalm 41 verse 9. By the way, what is the only accurate book in all of the history of the world, the universe, that can give prophecy accurately, it's the God's word. That alone should wipe out any questions of anybody. Only the Bible accurately predicts anything. And it never is wrong. Psalm 41, verse 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Can you, can you find a, a better description of what Judas is going to do just in this passage? A comparison would be David and Ahithophel. Jesus had Judas. David had Ahithophel. Now, in David's case, I think I can give some a little bit of latitude to Ahithophel. He was the cleverest counselor. He betrayed David, yes. And he was the right-hand man of Absalom, yes, in his rebellion. But why was that? Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. So, this doesn't take a genius to figure out why Ahithophel may have had it out for David. I can give him a little bit of latitude. However, Judas Iscariot, there's no such excuse. He had been chosen by Christ to be a disciple. He had watched for three, three and a half years. Jesus do these miraculous things. He of his own free will determined to become a traitor. His own natural ambition and greed and dishonesty drove him to do these things. The fact that the treachery of Judas was foreknown and foretold by God does not in any way take away the fact that he acted on his own free will to do this. Judas was a traitor by his own choice and behavior. Our knowledge, by the way, is after knowledge. We look back to the fact, and we know, for a simple reason, the fact exists. I have learned now that to catch the cat, the wild cat in our house, I have to have, be careful. I had him locked in the bathroom. We have a we have a Jack and Jill bathroom, which means we have doors on both sides upstairs. So I had shut him in there, and I and I got, went downstairs and got the cage and brought it back up. And I had the cage here, and so I opened it just to crack. And he's wanting to get out. I'd shut the bedroom door, by the way, thank Goodness, thank the Lord to shut that door. Anyway, and so I thought, and so I opened the door, and he bolted out. And I, he would get under the bed, and I would chase him under the bed. I had the door open. He would not go back in the bathroom. And here I am. I said, "Goodness gracious!" I'm trying to for 15 minutes. Finally, he ran back in the bathroom. And I closed the door. I still had to catch him in the bathroom. He didn't want to get caught. And to that, from that moment to this, he will not be in the bathroom alone with me anymore. The door is closed. No way. He has after knowledge because that means he's going to the vet. If, if, if that old bald headed man catches me, I'm going to the vet. I know what that means now. He would not even look at me on the way home from the vet. He was so mad at me. I opened the door in the house. He wouldn't even come out. So I had to go downstairs before it was a couple days before he already didn't get around me. So now he's, I think, forgiven me. But he still will not be in the bathroom alone with me with the door shut. <laughs> We call that after knowledge. We have that. Jesus, however, God has foreknowledge. He knows ahead of time. He can look at the fact that Judas is going to do these things, but Judas established that fact himself. He knows that i was going to receive Christ as personal Savior in Syrasville, Kentucky, but I made the choice to do that. And you say, but that, but how, then God's not, no, God is in control. He still is sovereign. He can take the choices of man and turn them however he desires to turn them. I, I, I think it even makes God's greater than a God who dictates every single move of every single person of every single decision possible. Which We call it predeterminism. We call it uh, just so that God even makes everybody do what, exactly what he says. And he's determined all those things, even all the bad things. I believe that God gives us his choice, but he takes our choices and he takes those and orchestrates those to his own sovereign ends. This this, this sequence then really is basic to all Bible prophetic statements. God foreknows is based on the facts he foresees, he lives outside of time, he sees everything in the eternal present, we cannot. He knows what's going to happen, and he's not limited, uh, confined, or restricted to having to live events in a single day, etc. So this quotation in Psalm 41.9, hath. Idea, hath made his heel great against me. The idea of bringing about a, a great fall, taking terrible advantage of someone—that's the idea that he has done. Again, Christ asserts his deity. You may believe that I am. Another proof. As they look back to the events, the disciples will say, "Oh, now that Judas we know he's a traitor, Jesus, yes, he." He knew exactly what was going to go on. He truly is God and just another solid evidence of his divinity. I am what I am. What amazing God we have. That was the teaching of the master. Then there's the traitor among men, starting at 21. By the way, and, and interesting, in north of Albany, New York, is this, was the site of the first great American victory of the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Saratoga. It was at one time covered with the blood and bodies of British and American soldiers, but now it has a 155-foot monument. Around this monument, there are four niches or recesses or reliefs, and there's four generals that were there. The first one on one side is Horatio Gates. He was the leader of, the, of that battle for the Americans. Next is Philip Schuyler, whose statue faces toward his house that the British burned. The third one was Daniel Morgan, the marksman who blocked the British from that direction. And facing south is an empty spot. An empty spot. Matter of fact, the spot that's empty belongs to the greatest general on that specific day. He was very severely wounded. He was a general who once commanded West Point. He was the distinguished career up until this one moment when he decided to betray his country, the man's name, Benedict Arnold. In the mind of every American, the name Benedict Arnold now stands for one thing. I don't even know how he betrayed but I know one thing, he's a betrayer. He's a traitor. Matter of fact, in Norwich, Connecticut, the handwritten town record puts the phrase, was the traitor, on by his name. But there's a worse traitor than Benedict Arnold. It's one in our text this morning. Far worse than betraying a country. The the announcing of this, we see it in 21, when Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece. Now I will have to say, if you start looking at masterpieces, you're going to find a lot of construing and people's ideas, what he's trying to paint, but I wanted to show you this for just a minute to see, as I talk through this for just a moment, you'll see what he's doing. The picture is after Jesus says, and by the way, Jesus did not have long hair. Really do not believe it. All you have ever saw, seen is these long-haired Jesuses. The Bible says, that even in Corinthians, I really don't believe he had long hair. But people picture him that way. Picture them all long hair for the most part. Anyway, back to the text. One of you shall betray me. He pictures all the disciples, their response. First, from left to right is Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Andrew, form the first three people, and they are, as you can see, they are surprised at what he has just said. Judas, Iscariot, Peter, and John then form the next three. This is Judas right here. I would call attention to what you already see was in his hand. Peter has... <laughs> A knife, you cannot see, but that's a knife right there. Peter got a knife in his hand. So we find that John is in the background. Judas is a shadow. He's rather withdrawn. He's the only one that has his hand on the table. Now again, in Bible times, they would be reclining at a very low table. This is Da Vinci's depiction of it in his mind's eye. He's clutching. Judas is clutching in his painting the 30 people. He's clutching the betrayal price. That's Judas right there, clutching. He held the bag, by the way. He kept the money for the disciples. He depicted him as knocking over a salt shaker. You can see it there, I believe. Salt shaker. And it's interesting that he would be knocking over a salt shaker when he's going to be rubbing salt in the wounds of the Savior in just a moment. Peter's holding a knife. Uh, perhaps a violent reaction. And John appears to swoon. And by the way, many have even really effeminately, and I cannot find any that looks most of them. And they use that for other purposes, as you well know, if you study anything about other Cultic activity, etc. Jesus is the center. James, the, the, the greater. Philip are the next. Thomas, James, and Philip are the next three. Thomas is clearly upset. James is stunned with his arms up in the air. And Philip appears to be requesting some explanation. And then Matthew, Jude, and Simon the Zealot. It's interesting. The last two are asking the, the possible assassin, Simon the Zealot, what they did. What is going on? And this is the moment after Jesus says, one of you shall betray me. And so the da Vinci is depicted that that way. When Jesus said that, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, one shall betray me. Trou- Why would Jesus be troubled? A plethora of reasons. He's troubled because of the unrequited or one way or unreturned love of Judas. Jesus loved Judas. Judas did not love Jesus. He was Troubled because of the, the magnitude of Judas' Judas's heart. The, the, he just so despised things. He's troubled because he the deep hatred of sin, and sin is sitting right there. He's troubled because no doubt he was able to see Satan very possibly in the room. Because Satan enters in, I believe it says, clearly Satan enters into Judas by verse 30. He's, he's upset, troubled because he knew the eternal destiny of Judas. He's troubled because of Satan's probably his his moving in Judas's life. Troubled because of the knowledge of sin and the betrayer. Troubled because Judas is going to a crisis eternity. Troubled because of all the the wretchedness of sin. He, he's troubled in spirit. Probably even troubled because the, the disciples are more concerned about who's greatest in the kingdom than what's facing Jesus. There's the announcing, there's the asking in 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And, and it goes on to tell that they, he was leaning there and Peter, in the, the, the uh, uh, had a curiosity of a cat, if you would, oh, who, who did it? And he looks over at John and they were sitting right together, if you notice it, and you know, ask him, you, know, ask him you, know, you ask him. And so John says, Lord, who is it? The asking. then there's the answering in 26. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a son. When I dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, in that, the communion service, which some still do today, still use this, they have one cup for everybody. And they pass one cup. I think it probably has gone by the wayside in many places because of the recent, last couple of years. And then they have one loaf of bread. You take a piece off, you pass the bread around. So everybody's hands touches the bread all the way through, and you grab your piece, and then everybody's hands and mouth is on the same cup. And so that's not very popular today. That was how they would do it, I believe, in Jesus' time. So he took a piece of bread, dipped it, and gave it to Judas as the sign. He appealed to the conscience. I think this was Judas' last chance. One last appeal to Judas' heart. Do you not realize what you're doing? But maybe Judas thinks, oh, Jesus is treating me nice and although I'm going to betray him, I've gotten by with it, and they don't really know. Perhaps the three-alarm fire has backed off to one alarm now, and I I think I'm going to get away with this. He's treated me as an honored guest. John was on the right. Judas is on the left. A place of honor for the betrayer. Far from being overwhelmed by the mark of honor, perhaps he simply confirmed, you know what, this Jesus is not who I thought he was, and I want an overthrowing, dictator type person he's not that and so he was able to get while the getting was good the traitor among men and finally the treason that was manifest in 27 but after the sop satan entered into him then jesus said unto him thou that thou doest do quickly i think the exact moment he crossed that line when he took the sop and refused to repent Satan comes in. He's been on Satan's side. He's been doing Satan's bidding. He's been, maybe, perhaps he's been maneuvered by Satan, but now I think Satan, it says, enters into him. He cannot be a true believer if he's indwelt by a spirit, an unholy spirit. I believe a true believer cannot be indwelt by an unholy spirit. Yes, we can be oppressed by, but not possessed by, because why? The Holy Spirit indwells us. He was able I think it's the point of no return. If you go to Canada on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, up the Niagara River, you can sit there, and they have a point right on the river—the point of no return. You go in there, you're going over. The point of no return. There's no way you're getting. no way you're not going over. And that's—I think—he has gone past the point of no return. He's hardened his heart to, to Christ. It's not impossible. It's it, it's possible for Satan now to move in and to take over possession, a command, confusion in twenty-eight. No man at the table knew for what? No man uh, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake unto this unto the him. For some of them thought, because Jesus had the bag, and that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. There was confusion. He had such a reputation. That's why I think Judas had this facade of being such a religious follower of Jesus and he can't be the, he can't be the traitor. He does so many good things and he's, he's got all his T's crossed and his eyes are all dotted just right. Charity work, that's what they thought. The command, the confusion, and then the conclusion. And then having received the sop, he went out and it was... Night. I think that word night so apropos. Jude 13, the blackness of darkness forever. The Holy Spirit, that was reverse, reserved for those who reject Christ. I think when he left that light, he left the fellowship. When he went out that door, he probably went down the steps to the first floor and went out into the night. He probably had people he was going to meet there in the dark and, and to, to betray Jesus. Listen, I know they're going to go to Gethsemane later on and we'll meet him there and we'll capture him there. Now he is walking in the council of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, and now sitting, seating, sitting in the seat of the scornful. You want to know what traitor is? It's Judas Iscariot. It was night. It is night. It will always be night. Can you imagine? The last moment of happiness was when he was with the Savior, if possible. And now there's never a chance for happiness again for Judas. Well, I'm going to close up with this, this idea of a servant's heart. The teaching of the master, the traitor among men, the treason that was manifest. And I found this quite uh, provoking, thought provoking. When I am too busy to pray, as we talk about service, I deny that you are sinner in my life. When I neglect your word, I deny that you are competent to guide me. When I, when I weary, worry, I deny that you are the Lord of my circumstances. When I turn my head from the hungry and homeless, I deny that you are a God of mercy who has put me here to be your hands and feet. When I steal from another person to enrich or enhance my life, whether that be something material or something a credit that is rightly due to another person that I've claimed for myself, I deny that you are the source of all blessings. Forgive me, Jesus, the author says, for all those quiet ways known only to you in which I have denied you. Forgive me, Jesus, for each time this week I have not had love for my brother or sister or neighbor. And forgive me, Jesus, for every time I didn't wash the heel that was raised up against me. And my wife said me a song this week, how can we reach a world we never touch? How can we reach a world we never touch? How can we do that? We have to examine ourselves. Alexander White was a Scottish preacher in the early 1900s. And he magnified the awfulness of sin, but the graciousness of Christ. He was always more aware of his own sin than anybody else. And a visiting evangelist came to Edinburgh, Scotland, and he was criticizing ministers. And a friend was sitting with Dr. Wright in his house. He said, The evangelist said last night that Dr. Hood Wilson was unconverted. And White jumped from his chair, and that rascal, Dr. Wilson, not a converted man. Then the friend reported, and the evangelist also said that Alexander White was not converted. And he put his head in his hand. He said, leave me, friend, leave me. I must examine my heart. And that's it. I'm not examining your heart. No one else examining your heart shouldn't be thinking about trying to do that. The Holy Spirit, though, can do an admirable job of examining your heart. It's me, O Lord, standing And in need of prayer. What do you call a Christian who isn't serving? A contradiction. A contradiction. For the unbeliever this morning, if you don't know Christ, receive him. If you are a on-the-fence, carnal Christian, life is for service. That's why you are here to serve. And striving believer, let us keep short accounts of our life with Christ and confess sin. And let's be used this week. Let us pray, God, please use me this week. Let us pray together. Lord, help us to have hearts that want to serve. Lord, we have seen in our text, in one passage of Scripture, the greatest lesson on serving Jesus and the greatest travesty of life, Judas, having seen Jesus in person for three, three and a half years, watching his beauty and glory and holiness rejected him and betrayed him Lord. we as your children we may not go nearly that far but sometimes by our lives and our by our words and by our actions and by our attitudes we betray the holy spirit who's living inside of us lord may that not be us may we keep short accounts with you May each of us endeavor by your grace to be used by you to further your work here on earth. And we look forward to what you have in store for eternity. Your purpose to be glorified and serve you for ever and ever and ever. Lord, give us servants' hearts. May not be about us. May it be about others. The world does not revolve around us. The world revolves around you. You are upholding all things by the word of your power. Lord, if there's in me this morning, may you speak to hearts and may hearts respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.